In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, who does enlighten the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, granted by the gift of the same Spirit, we may always truly wise, and never rejoice in his consolation, through the same Christ our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hear Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Saint Joseph. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So I remind you what we said yesterday, that there will be confessions tonight. Um, and Father Pepping has asked me to say that on the last night, on Friday, that he will give you a real drink, not just a cup of tea. So if you're able to stay behind for that, that would be very nice. So, so far we've considered the sublimity of the state of fatherhood, how it is a marvelous, wonderful reflection of the very life of God, of the fatherhood of God, that its essence is not so much in physical generation, but in the spiritual maturity which fathers are supposed to bring to their children. And that's a consolation to us all, so that even those of us who are not fathers in the flesh, such as myself, that we've still got a useful purpose in life and a purpose which has still got the nature of the essence of fatherhood, which is a spiritual relationship, as demonstrated, of course, most admirably in the case of St. Joseph. Then yesterday we considered how the sin of our first parents had destroyed the union, or not destroyed, but broken, the uh, alienated, the union which should exist, first of all, between mankind and its creator, and then, of course, between husbands and wives, as evidenced by Adam and Eve and their fig leaves, and then after that we considered the alienation which so, so often happens between, alas, between parents and their children. So we've already got now a kind of a, an overview, so it's worthwhile to consider some of these aspects slightly more profoundly now. So tonight I would like to consider the greatest thing which any father can do for his children. Now, just before I speak about it, I'd like you just for a moment's reflection to consider what is the greatest thing that you can do for your children? Formulate the answer in your mind. <clears throat> and then I'll tell you what I think the answer is. <laughs> because this is really fundamental. What is, people are still arriving, so I'll repeat the question. What is the greatest thing that any father can do for his children? 
Right, you've made up your minds now what it is. <laughs> well, I hope the answer coincides with mine. The greatest thing that a father can do for his children is to love their mother. Good. I'm sure nobody seems too startled. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> that is surely the greatest thing that we can do for our children is to love their mother. And indeed, I would say that the whole of our fatherhood depends on the fact of loving our wives because I think it's not an exaggeration to say that if we do not love our wives, if we do not love the mother of our children, there's every likelihood that our children will cease to love us. It's almost inevitable. It's inevitable for many reasons, not less because of the fact that we are simply not constantly and perpetually with our children. Such is the nature of modern life, it wasn't so in the past of course, that much of our life is spent away from our children. And although we should be the head of the family, Although that is our role, the head of the, being the head of the family in modern times is a very difficult task from many points of view, but not least by the fact that we have got to be so, ab- so long absent from our families. And therefore, inevitably, our wives, as the mother of our children, are going to have a more immediate impact, daily influence on their lives. So that if we make our wives unhappy or alienated, then that will inevitably be passed on to our children. It cannot possibly be otherwise. Even if our wives are pillars of heroism and don't say a word about it, their children with the antennae that children have, the hypersensitive antennae, will know it. They will recognize it. And there's one thing sure, they will not love us for it. So all of our interest is to love our wives. In fact, we can also say that the greatest thing, the greatest thing that we can do for ourselves is to love our wives. Because if we don't, we diminish our own life. It's inevitable. Now, it may be, it's easy to say that, isn't it? I mean, I'm, because, because inevitably, we know that love is free. It cannot be forced. And it may be, it may well be, that we no longer love our wives. Or at least, maybe we don't love them as, well, let me, let me say, maybe we don't love them in the same way that we loved them before. Maybe, alas, we don't even love them at all. So, even if we do love our wives, and I hope that we do, whether we do or whether we don't, for a moment it's worthwhile reflecting on the nature of love. It's something that everybody speaks about all the time, but what is it? What is love? That's not such an easy question to answer. We all know instinctively what it is, but to define it, clearly is far more elusive. 
It's easier to define it by what it's not. And what it's not is so often what it's presented to be. And particularly nowadays, of course, with the adulation of sensuality and sexuality, love, all you need is love, ba 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 ba. It's absolutely true. All you need is love. Of course, what's, what the authors of that piece of music meant, all you need is sex, da 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 da. That's really what the message was all about, wasn't it? And of course, <clears throat> the reality is that the Physical expression of love is very attractive, very alluring, very exciting. And as we were saying earlier, one of the first effects of original sin was to make this activity desirable over and beyond the rationality of it. So that people do the most stupid things, the most foolish things in the pursuit of sensual pleasure and fulfillment. It's contrary to reason. Sometimes they even know it's contrary to reason. But also reason tells us, and if reason doesn't tell us, experience tells us, that it peters out. Because it's inevitably, essentially, an attraction of superficial beauty. Nonetheless, real beauty, because superficial beauty is, of course, visual beauty is, is beauty, and it's attractive. But the physical attraction which we feel as a result of this beauty is something which inevitably is going to fade away. It's got to fade away, whether we like it or not. And inevitably, even to a degree, if it's merely superficial, it fades away in our minds. That's why our partner ceases to satisfy us anymore. The attraction which she gave us at the beginning has got to be either replaced by something more profound or it's going to disappear. So the power of sexual desire is often ruined by circumstances or by familiarity. We get so used to the person that the mystique of their bodies evaporates. And we're left to see them in their souls, which sometimes isn't quite as beautiful as their body. (laughs) And so it disappears. And then there's the uh, emotional attraction of people. The two things are very often, of course, are linked. And God has willed that they should be linked. This is not a condemnation of sexuality or of sensuality. It's a condemnation of making it an end in itself and making it the be-all or the end-all or the most important aspect of loving. That's the mistake. Then there's the whole emotional state which goes with it, which is more noble, of course, but which is also based on the shifting sands of passion or sentiment. In fact, we often feel that the irresistible force of sentiment is a justification for it. What's the other old song? 
because I'm an old man, I don't know any of the new songs. And because I'm, I've always been a traditionalist, I only know the songs from before my own time. So the other one is, Falling in love again, what am I to do? Not a thing to do. Can't help it. <laughs> Can't help it. You've fallen in love. It's so beautiful. It's so lovely. Can't help it. But is that really love? It's funny. It's a contradiction, isn't it? Because love is meant to be free. So if it's free, if you can't help it, it's not free, is it? You're already imprisoned and chained by it. So it's very curious how, on the one hand, you can have this determined assertion that love is free and a complete surrender to the chains that it binds you up in. St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, inevitably being the rational man that he was, gives a def- a, quite a different definition of love. And it's really important that we understand this. St. Th- Thomas Aquinas says that love is the will to do good to the other, to the object of our love. That love, in other words, is selfless. Note that the other forms of love are, I don't want to call them selfish, because they are not selfish in the sense that they are part of God's design to draw us out of our selfishness and draw us to love another. That's why in marital love, it's necessary, as a general rule, it's necessary to have a sexual attraction and an emotional attraction. If you don't have a sexual attraction and an emotional attraction, well, what if you don't have either of these? Remember in the old days when marriages were arranged? And the church actually recognized the legitimacy and the validity of these marriages. When people were married, they couldn't possibly have any sexual or emotional attraction to each other because they never saw each other <laughs> before the wedding day. <laughs> now, how is this possible? And, and, and sometimes... Their marriages were great successes. Now, why could that be? How does that be? Because marriage is essentially rooted not in the emotions, but in the will. As St. Thomas says, it's a will for the good, not of ourselves, but for the others. Note the other two, the sexual desire, the emotional feelings are all a concentration on ourselves. In that, in these circumstances, we are looking for the person who will satisfy us, who will please us, who will love us. We are looking for something which is centered on ourselves. Whereas what we've got to do is to get beyond that stage and will to love them per- the person for themselves. So that the true mutual love, genuine love, is a will of total benevolence. So that, rather than loving, say, our wife for the sensual satisfaction that she gives us or the emotional support that she gives us, we love her by giving her our sexual and emotional support. Instead of taking, we are essentially giving. And that is what the difference between true, true love and false love. Often, it's the same action 
fornication and the marital act are the same action, but their significance and their meaning is totally different. The intention behind is entirely different. The one is a taking for self, and the other should be a giving of the totality of self to the other. That's why God is able to command us to love. If love was completely beyond our control, if it wasn't a a question of the will, how could God command us to love? How could God, how could our Lord have said, and when he said it, he was quoting the Old Testament, he was quoting the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole strength and thy whole mind. Deuteronomy. And thy neighbor as thyself. Leviticus. God throughout history has commanded men to love. How can we love? And when he says, what is the test of love? Notice, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He who keepeth my commandment, he is who loveth me. We have got to fix our will on the good. And generally, as a necessary consequence of fixing our will on the good, the emotional and the sensible part of our soul will follow. Because our sensibilities in a man who is properly integrated are subject to our will. That's why the essence of devotion is not in the sentiments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Our Lord doesn't say, if you love me, feel good about me, feel all lovey-dovey about me, or anything. He says, keep my commandments. Choose me as your highest good. Even, even he allows. Not only does he allow, he's organized creation in such a way that we should, in a certain manner, love others with a greater degree of sensible intensity. Don't be afraid that you might feel, you might feel more loving about your children than you do about God, or more loving about your girlfriend than you do about God. The two things are not contrary. Because the, because the love of the senses is subordinated to the will. And as long as we've chosen God above all things, so that if it really came to the crunch, we would choose Him in the face of the attractions which we have to other things, We are loving him as we should. That's what gives us the strength to lead virtuous lives. That's what gives you the strength, presumably, that when you see another attractive woman who might be far more attractive physically than your wife, that you just don't give yourself to it. You don't surrender to it. You've chosen another. You have given your heart to another. And you prove your love... We all prove our love by dominating our senses, when our senses wish to lead us in a direction other than where our love directs. So what we've got to do is to work, to integrate ourselves so that our senses contribute to and strengthen the love which we have chosen. That's the only way it's possible. How could we possibly... How could we possibly promise to love somebody with a merely sexual or a merely emotional love forever? That's impossible. We don't know how long it's going to, how that aspect of our life is going to last. 
It may last a long time. I hope it does last a long time. In a good, healthy marriage, it should last a long time. Because if it's not an end in itself, it's like everything. If it's not an end in itself, it's more likely to last than if it's made an end in itself. That's what we say. I take you to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better and worse, in sickness and health, till death do us part. With this ring I thee wed, this gold and silver I thee give, with my body I thee worship. I love you also with my body. All my worldly goods I give to you forever and ever. Amen. Because by loving us, we are loving as God loves. God loves us always. God loves us even when we are unattractive, when we are sinners. God continues to love us. And so if we are really and truly in the image and likeness of God, and we not only are naturally, but we become by grace, by our baptism, and by our marriage, we become a supernatural reflection of the love of God, we must then become like God. Therefore, we must love even in spite of the unattractive characteristics of our spouse. And, of course, our children. But for tonight, we're looking at our spouse. This is essential and it's fundamental. And if we do not love our spouse, then we cannot be truly fathers in the full sense of the word. Now, alas, of course, in human affairs and in human love, it requires (laughs) two sides, For human love to come to its perfection, it's got to be mutual. So that if our marriage is failing, if our marriage even, alas, in practice, were ever to come to an end, we must see that in no wise have we been responsible for this. That's why marriage has got to be seen as a total commitment. It's not a 50-50 sort of contract. That's why it's got to be a total surrender. The one to the other. And if either one or the other will not make the surrender, then it will fail. And it's only when we truly love that the other can come to the perfection of their being. When we love our spouse, we really make them a new being. When we have children, they make us somebody different. They make us somebody new. They make us a father. And we make them a mother. The whole even quality of their existence changes. And it's necessary for them to bring out, through their loving, a, uh, their loving wifely love, the fatherhood and the masculinity which is latent in us until we become fathers, and we must bring out of them the truly feminine, which is really, what's the most truly feminine? It's to become a mother. It's far more feminine than just being a sort of a, an attractive floozy. <laughs> it's because it's the ripening maturity of one's being and personality. And, we've, and because motherhood and fatherhood, as we've already said, is not a mere physical state or the effect of a physical state, it's a whole 
being, then it's essential that we, that we grasp this. God has made mankind male and female, as we saw there in the book of Genesis. Why, does, why, why has God created sex and, and, the, uh, and the reproduction faculty? It's because he has given us, as we said earlier, he's given us to share in his creative function, in his image and likeness, in mind and in will, in our souls, in our external activities, in our creative activity. But he's also given us, in a certain sense, to share in his eternity. That by the reproduction of living things, the eternal life of God is reflected in nature. See, it's only in living things. There's no sex and there's no reproduction in inanimate creatures. The rocks and the, the sea doesn't reproduce itself. It's only things which are really living, which are closer to the a true reflection of God, does this eternal function continue on living. It's a marvelous thing. And so God has made us male, male and female so that we, that by this, that the, the reflection of the Godhead is thereby shown forth and the love of the Holy Trinity is revealed in the trio nature of father, son, uh, father, mother and children. Here's a, here's a, here's a little thing from this other book. <clears throat> this book, uh, I said earlier, Manhood and Family. Not so long ago, it was customary among the unpretentious to refer to a strange or perverse view of things as being cockeyed. As many other popular expression, this had a certain magical profundity and aptness. No doubt it was coined by some, some unremembered Shakespeare. We do see so many views today that are un- undoubtedly cockeyed. If by cockeyed we mean that one eye has capitulated or gone over to the other. In the mad scheme of things that philosophers recognize as normal, each human eye has a certain autonomy of its own. Even though they are side by side in the same head, nature has given to either eye a right to its own opinion. The mind, of course, being in a position of command, accepts the two opinions submitted, grateful for the fact that there is a somewhat different view from either side of the nose, and from the composite picture draws its own conclusions. When the eyes are cocked, each is jealous and inquisitively invading the domain of the other. Each eye is acting as though the other had no right to exist. As though, like the ancient Cyclops, nature might have done better by placing one eye autocratically enthroned in the middle of the forehead. Right, you've got the analogy. I think that there are reasons other than whimsy in God's decision to give us two eyes rather than one. After much thought, I have concluded that in the omnipotent opinion of the Creator, we could see better that way. Whatever is, whatever it is, sorry, the eyes are meant to do, they can do it best as mates. Each with a certain autonomy, each with its own way of looking at things, and each careful that its eager inquisitiveness 
does not invade the domain of the other. The same judiciousness was exercised at the time when Adam was relieved of a superfluous rib and the race of mankind suddenly became bipartisan. I think we can draw the conclusion that whatever it is that God wishes the human race to accomplish, he wants it to be the mutual collaboration of two parties. Each party must make its own particular contribution. Each must respect the domain of the other. Both must cooperate. Mankind cannot accomplish its mission in a merely masculine way, nor can it accomplish it in a merely feminine way. The mission will be a common striving for a common goal. Men and women need each other in order to be mankind. My left eye and my right eye do different jobs, but the jobs are to the same end, and they work together. If their eyes refuse to work together, a state of ocular anarchy ensues, and we become wall-eyed. If one insists on usurping the prerogatives of the other, I become cockeyed. The normal state of ocular health, then, can be described as a mutual tension that sets them apart and an opposing tension that draws them together. These tensions of attraction and repulsion produce a certain equilibrium, a certain appropriate harmony of operation. A comparable condition of attraction and repulsion exists between the human sexes. It is normal for a man to love a woman, This is the attraction. A man does not want to become a woman. This is the repulsion. It is the same with a woman. The condition that is desired is an equilibrium of opposing forces. When we find this satisfactory and happy condition in a woman, we say that she is womanly. If we find it in a man we say that he is manly. Manliness, then, is the masculine virtue that makes the man best adapted to achieve a common goal with the collaboration of woman. As we recognize that goal as Christians as the saving of our several souls and the making of temporal institutions, especially the family, which will follow that end. I think that's a pretty good analogy. One eye is not the other. They are both working to the same end. One must not invade the dominion of the other. And the world is made richer. The vision of things is made richer by both. And so it's really essential that we constantly work towards that harmonization. That's what will make us really and truly what we must be. This is on the purely natural level. This is before it's even supernaturalized. And we should really be doing all in our power to live lives of harmony with our spouses. Now, as we all know, that women and men have different views of things. But they're not and they should not be contrary to each other. 
If I can now read another bit from a non-religious book once again, just a, just a little thing is, I'm sure you've all heard, if you've not actually read the very famous book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. Well, somebody's looking, I think, slightly disapproving. I, I can't say I've read this book in great profundity, but I glanced through it and I think it's got a lot of very, very practical wisdom in it. The basic idea is, it's, all, it's, a, it's a book of practice, but it, it builds a little fantasy, that men come from Mars. Mars, of course, is the planet of the god of war, and women come from Venus, which is the planet of love. And the men, of course, are outgoing, and they build their telescope, and they see the people living on Venus, and they see the beauty of these fabulous creatures living on Venus, and so they build all the means necessary to have a, sh- a, sp- a spaceship which takes them to Venus. And the women in Venus, of course, have been waiting for the day. They never knew how, but somehow somebody would come and make their lives all much nicer than it is. So they fall in love with each other, and they move on to Earth, where they're meant to live happily ever after. But on Earth, they start forgetting that they come from different planets. And as they forget, they misunderstand each other. And they especially misunderstand each other in their speech. So here's, I mean, here's a little, here's a little illustration from this book, which I think is good. Here is a typical conversation between husband and wife. Very short conversations. In each convers, in, in both conversations, the wife says exactly the same thing, you will notice. But the outcome of these two conversations are quite different. Mary comes home from an exhausting day. She wants and she needs to share her feelings. Pay close attention to the vocabulary used. She needs to share her feelings about the day. She says, oh, there's so much to do. I don't have any time for myself. Tom says, you should quit that job. You don't have to work so hard. Find something else to do. Mary says, no, but I like my job. They just expect me to change everything at a moment's notice. Tom says, don't listen to them. Just do what you can do. Mary says, I am doing what I can do. Oh, I forgot to call my aunt today. Tom says, don't worry about it. She'll understand. Mary says, don't you understand what she's going through? She needs me. Tom says, look, you worry too much. That's why you're so unhappy. Mary angrily says, I'm not always unhappy. Can't you just listen to me? Tom says, I am listening to you. And Mary says, oh, why do I even bother? Hmm? Now, after this conversation, Mary was more frustrated than when she arrived home seeking intimacy and companionship. Tom was also frustrated and had no idea of what went wrong. He wanted to help but his problem-solving tactics just did not work. Without knowing about life on Venus, Tom didn't understand how important it was just to listen without offering any solutions. You see, you see, Venusians never offer solutions when somebody is talking. Remember that, it's a good one to remember. They never offer solutions when somebody is talking. The way of honoring another Venusian is to listen, 
patiently, with empathy, seeking to understand the other person's feelings. All right? Not their problems, their feelings. That's what you've got to understand. Tom had no idea that just listening with empathy to Mary express her feelings would bring her tremendous relief and fulfillment. When Tom heard about the Venusians and how much they needed to talk, he gradually learned how to listen. So now, when Mary comes home tired and exhausted, their conversations are quite different. Now, notice Mary's saying the same thing. Mary says, there's so much to do. I've no time for me. Tom takes a deep breath and says, hmm, sounds like you had a hard day. Mary says, well, they expect me to change everything at a moment's notice. I don't know what to do. Tom pauses and then goes, hmm. Mary says, I even forgot to call my aunt. Tom says with a slightly wrinkled brow, oh, no. (laughs) Mary says, she needs me so much right now. I feel so bad. Tom says, you are such a loving person. Come here, let me give you a hug. Tom gives Mary a hug and she relaxes in his arms with a big sigh of relief. She then says, I love talking with you. You make me really happy. Thanks for listening. I really feel much better. Not only Mary, but also Tom felt better. He was amazed at how much happier his wife was when he finally learned to listen. With this new awareness of their differences, Tom learned the wisdom of listening without offering solutions, while Mary learned the wisdom of letting go and accepting without offering unsolicited advice or criticism. I think that's a typical little kind of thing. Here's another little bit. I won't read too much of this, but it's up. Constant complaints that are easily interpreted. Here are a series of complaints with what women say and how men answer. We never go out, men answer. That's not true. We went out last week. Everyone ignores me. I'm sure some people notice you. I'm so tired, I can't do anything. That's ridiculous. You're not helpless. I want to forget everything. If you don't like your job, then quit. This house is always a mess. It's not always a mess. No one listens to me anymore, but I'm listening to you right now. Nothing is working. Are you saying it's my fault? You don't love me anymore. Of course I do. That's why I'm still here. You're always in a hurry. I'm not. On Friday we were relaxed. I want more romance. Are you saying I'm not romantic? And so it goes on. This house is always a mess. Venusian, he says, translated into Martian, means, Today I feel like relaxing, but the house is so messy. I'm frustrated and I need a rest. I hope you don't expect me to clean it up. Would you agree with me that it is a mess? And then offer to help clean it up with me? Now, without that translation, when a woman says, 
this house is always a mess, a man may hear, this house is a mess because of you. I do everything possible to clean it up, and before I've finished, you've messed it up again. You're a lazy slob, and I don't want to live with you unless you change. Clean up or get out. (laughs) But apparently... I mean, that's the interpretation I would have made of it, but apparently this is not how it works. You can put these things to the test. You you live with women, I don't. But it sounds, to me, it sounds realistic. No one listens to me anymore. That's, That's a common complaint, of course, especially about husbands. Translated into Martian means... I am afraid I am boring you. I am afraid you are no longer interested in me. I seem to be very sensitive. I seem to be very sensitive today. Would you give me some special attention? I would love it. I've had a hard day and I feel as though no one wants to hear what I have to say. Would you listen to me and continue to ask me supportive questions such as what happened today? What else happened? How did you feel? What did you want? How else did you feel? Also support me by saying caring, acknowledging and reassuring statements such as tell me more or that's right or I know what you mean or I understand or just listen and occasionally when I pause make one of those reassuring sounds like oh, hmm, ah, hmm. And it says here, note, Martians had never heard of these sounds before arriving on Venus. (laughs) Without this translation, when a woman says, no one listens to me, he may hear, I give you my attention, but you don't listen to me. You used to. You've become a very boring person to be with. I want someone exciting and interesting, and you are definitely not that person. You have disappointed me. You are selfish, uncaring, and bad. There you are. Make of it as you will. But it's necessary to have, to remind ourselves that we are of a different composition and that this composition is willed by God and that we are meant to complement ourselves, each other. And that by, by the richness of the harmony which comes from these different temperaments, we enrich the world. We enrich ourselves. We are enriched by this complementary mode of being and seeing. And certainly, we must thereby enrich the lives of our children. And really, we promised to do this on the day of our wedding. The time's running out again terribly quickly. On the day of our wedding, the epistle of the Mass can give a certain comfort to a certain type of man, but he should be careful what comfort he takes out of it, because it might not just mean exactly what it says in a superficial manner. A lesson from the Epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians. It really starts off well. Brethren, Let women be subject to their husbands, as to the Lord's. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so also let the wives be to their husbands in all things. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it that he might sanctify it, cleansing it with the lava of water in the word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So also ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, as also Christ doth the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. This is a great sacrament, but I speak in Christ and in the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular love his wife as himself, and let the wife fear her husband. Now, these words, of course, sum up the perfection of married life. In order to be loved, one must be lovable. And in order to be obeyed, one must be worthy of obedience. No false comfort should be taken from these words, as if somehow or other, wives were meant to be considered as to render the obedience of slaves, or to be rendered the obedience of vanquished enemies, <laughs> that you sort of beat your wife into submission. When women are asked to be subject, they are asked to be subject in love. They are asked to respond to the very essence of their nature, which was made to be man's helpmate. Now, being man's helpmate does not mean to be his slave. It doesn't even mean to do the kind of work that slaves do. To be a helpmate does not mean to get the dinner, do the washing, and clean the house. It means to help a man to become a perfect man, to share his life with him, to share his intimate nature, and by loving him, to bring him to the perfection of his nature. Part of that is certainly making the dinner for him and cleaning the clothes and doing the house. But all of that is meant to be a, an expression of the devotion and love that she should have. The fear which, which wives are meant to have for their husbands is not a servile fear. 
They are not to be afraid of their husbands because of his physical strength or because of his overbearing personality or that some dreadful consequence is going to happen to them. They must love him as we love God with a reverential fear. We must love, the husband, wives are expected to love their husbands as we are expected to love God. The reverential fear of God is the fear whereby we dread to lose his love by being out of harmony with him, by not seeing things as he sees them, by not loving as he loves, and by not having one mind with him. Servile fear of God is the fear that he might punish us and cast us into hell. Servile fear is useful and salutary, but it is not the essence of the fear which God wills us to have. And therefore, likewise, we are expected to love each other. Husbands also must have a reverential fear of their wives. They must fear to lose their affection. They must fear to lose the union which must exist between them. Now, if St. Paul doesn't actually mention it in relation to husbands, it's because, of course, as we've already said, that the husband represents the fatherhood of God in a manner which the wife does not so visibly express. But the wife is a human being. The wife is made in the image and likeness of God. The wife is also a reflection of God. The wife, like the husband, is a sacred person and is to be loved and reverenced as such. And that's why, again, we are commanded, husbands, love your wives. And notice how it says that we have to love our wives as Christ loved the church. The church doesn't fear its saviour. The church isn't in dread. The church understood as the loyal living members of the mystical body of Christ do not fear him in that sense. And he delivered himself up for it. So we have got to deliver ourselves up likewise for our wives. That's a whole function of our marriage. We are to love, cherish, protect our wives even with our own lives. And with our own lives means not just the shedding of our blood, although that may be necessary one day, but that's for one day. It means on this day to surrender our life in devotion to her and to her children and to your children. It must be a complete sacrificing of oneself. As we make... If you like, the man produces a seed, which produces the child. Our Lord speaks about seed. He speaks about wheat. He said, if the grain of wheat falling to the ground does not die, it remains alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that loses his life for the gospel for Christ shall gain it. That's how our marriages must be. We're not just to produce the seed of our bodies to impregnate the bodies of our spouses. We are meant to produce the seed of all the riches of our soul to bring forth, to flower, 
all of the perfection of her being, as she is to draw out of us all the perfection of ours. That's why it surely says, we've got to give our lives, as Christ did, we've got to sacrifice our life totally for our beloved. We've got to see in her, in spite of all of her faults, we've got to see over and beyond her faults to what we are really loving, which is Christ, God, in her. And she has, all like contrarywise, got to see in us, in spite of all of our faults, Christ in us. And it's only then that the true perfection of our being can be brought out. See what it says, that Christ might sanctify the church. We've got to sanctify our spouse by loving her. And by loving her with the totality of our being. So that everything that we do for each other and with each other is a perfection not only of our natural personalities and being, but of our spiritual life. So that everything becomes for us truly the life of grace. Even the the marriage act, for example, which is the supreme uh, expression of the mutual love in marriage, which is a complete expression of the totality of self, of the giving of self and soul, to those who do who 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 do their uh, duty in this regard, all according to God's plan, is a means of grace. Sometimes don't think about that, and it's maybe the greatest means of, of grace. And St. Thomas Aquinas himself says that. We'll speak about that another time. We've not got time now, but but you see how Christ Himself perfects the church. He sanctifies it. He cleanses it of its sins. By the lever of water in the word of life. So our words also should be the words of life. To our wives and to our children. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. That Christ might present to himself the church. When we bring out all that's best and perfect in our wives. We must make ourselves happy. Who's she going to be presented to in her perfection? Nobody but ourselves. We present to ourselves a glorious spouse, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So also ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Isn't that just absolutely, magnificently sublime? If only it corresponded to the actual reality of our lives. And it could, and it should. Were it not for the intensity, the greater intensity of our own self-love. This can only be achieved by the surrender, or at least the intention, the, the habitual intention to surrender more and more our own innate selfishness. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man hated his own flesh. They shall be two in one flesh. Extraordinary, really. But nourisheth and cherisheth it. So that's it. You've got to nourish, of course, we've got to nourish our wives by bringing home the wages. But especially we've got to nourish her soul. That's what our Lord says to the devil. The devil said to our Lord, turn these stones into bread. And our Lord said to him, no, no. 
God. Man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the word of God. So our spouses and our family will live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from our mouth. What, what do they hear from our mouths in reality? What do they hear? No man hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, as also Christ doth the church, for you are members of his body and his flesh and of his bones. As we are integrated into the life of Christ by grace, so are we integrated into each other in Christ by grace. This is indeed, says St. Paul, a great sacrament. A great sacrament which perhaps we not, even though we're living it, fully comprehended its, its greatness and its magnificence and all that it can do to make us perfectly, almost perfectly happy in this world and certainly perfectly happy in the next. So that loving our wives till death do us part, we will not part at death, but will be eternally united in and with Christ forever. Amen. <clears throat> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, hail our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, the eyes of mercy towards us. And after this, our exile, shun to us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen.